0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Alright, good morning. How's everybody doing? Oh man, one of those days. I think everybody won, right? Everybody, I mean, some people didn't, but uh, half of you did, so that's great. Um, My name is Robert, I'm one of the pastors here, I'm so glad you're here with us this morning online or here in person. Uh, Grab a Bible if you don't have one, Uh, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. Uh, I have two goals, two goals. The first is to help you see that you are dispensable in the Lord's work and two to show you that this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. Um, <clears throat> if you have problems with that, you can email me at brad at insidecrosspoint.com. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. Um, no, as Tyler mentioned, my email address actually is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. You can sign up for stuff that way. But uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and um, so let's get, let's get right to it. 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, let me give you a little context here first from First Kings chapter 18, which is, as you might imagine, the chapter just before this one. Uh, the prophet Elijah, hopefully you're familiar with uh, this major character, if you will, in the Old Testament, uh, Elijah in chapter 18 of Kings, the, he, he's a part of an incredible display of God's power and glory and might. Uh, he's he's right in the thick of things. He is the prophet of Israel. He is the servant of Almighty God. And he challenges these so-called prophets of Baal, this false idolatrous God that the Israelites have been worshiping to that point. Uh, He challenges them to a sort of uh, cook-off. I don't know. He uh, has them both set up these altars. Elijah's got his altar. The prophets of Baal have their altar. They put their sacrifices on it. Uh, And then they're going to call down fire from on high. And whichever deity brings this fire to the altar is the one who will be shown to be the truest, most powerful, the one true God. Uh, his, His whole point is to really prove to the Israelites just how off base they have been in their idol worship. And so he does this. He sets up this showdown. And of course, as you might imagine, Baal is shown to be a fraud his prophets are subsequently all slaughtered by Elijah himself and a few uh, helpers. And, uh, and, and then we see that the hand of the Lord is just plainly on Elijah, not just in that episode, but even then immediately afterward. He ends a drought that had been plaguing the Israelites uh, for a significant period of time, just, just because he seeks the Lord, the, the drought then ceases and rain begins to come down. He then sprints, sprints uh, from where he is at Mount Carmel to a city nearby called Jezreel, which is where uh, the king Ahab of Israel uh, lives there with his wife uh, Jezebel. He sprints there. He is so ready to see the reaction on their face, to see the, the aftermath of this mighty work of the Lord and his people. Uh, and so the chapter 18 ends on what you might call a high note. It is, uh, it's full of excitement. God wins. There's never really any question about how things are going to shake out. Elijah's doing awesome stuff. He's in the middle of just great mighty works of the Lord. It ends on a great, a great positive note, which makes then chapter 19, the chapter we're in today, very confusing, <laughs> Uh, because what happens here is nothing at all like chapter 18, and uh, in fact, deliberately so. As you read it, you realize that the Lord has a, has a purpose in including this story right after uh, chapter 18's uh, narrative. So let me pray for us as we open up God's word, and then we'll read chapter 19. Lord, we do ask you this morning to meet with us, to reveal yourself to us through your word, to speak to your servant's. Lord, I pray that you would quicken our hearts, that you would embolden us to serve you in faithfulness and with joy. I pray that you would challenge our assumptions about who you are and maybe even our assumptions about our own significance in your work of redemption. Uh, Father, I pray for the people in here, as surely there are many who do not know you. Uh, who maybe even think that they understand the gospel but are far from you, I pray that you would bring dead hearts to life today, whether here in this room or even watching online. I I pray that your gospel would go forward and that it wouldn't return void. We know that you are sufficient for the the purposes that you have planned. So we ask you to work mightily among us, even though we may not be able to perceive it today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, so let's get right to it here in First Kings chapter 19. I'm just going to read, and I'm going to make some comments along the way, and uh, we'll see, see where this goes. So chapter 19, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> Ahab, that's the king of Israel, and you remember in the history of Israel, you've really got two kingdoms here at this point. There's a northern kingdom called Israel, and then there's a southern kingdom called Judah, uh, and so Elijah is speaking uh, uncomfortable things to the northern kingdom's king, Ahab. Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, all that Elijah had done. Everything in chapter 18 that we just uh, summarized. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. What, what's she going to say? She said, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life... As the life of one of them, those prophets, by this time tomorrow. And then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So this is uh, this this is this is what you call a 180. This is a turn of events. In this story, Elijah has gone from being really, literally on the mountaintop of experiencing God's power and might to suddenly, at the at the the letter of this this queen, I guess, uh, absolutely dreading for his life, sprinting as far from this place as he can. Jezebel's threat, by the way, is really not a joke. Uh, She is notorious for just slaughtering God's prophets. She doesn't really care. She's not exactly going to lead up the women's ministry at your church anytime soon. Uh, she's, She's a horrible, horrible person. And Elijah knows this. And he rightly understands that she does have some authority and power in this kingdom to do as she pleases. And it sounds like she pleases to slaughter Elijah then and there. She's so frustrated and furious. Jezreel, the city that Elijah starts out in, is in the far north of Israel. By the end of this paragraph, by the end of these three verses, Elijah has gone as far away from there as possible to the southernmost edge of the southern kingdom of Judah in the city of Beersheba. He has run a great distance in a great hurry because of his fear of this woman. Picking up in verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey even further than that. He stopped in Beersheba, he dropped off his servant, he didn't want to bring any more people with him, and he kept going a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Let's pause here. So at the beginning of this tale, Jezebel sends Elijah a messenger. The messenger's message is not all that encouraging or positive. Uh, Elijah runs for his life, and here he stops. He's ready to die, and the Lord sends him an angel, which is interesting because the Hebrew word for angel and the Hebrew word for messenger are the same word. And so the Lord sends him himself an emissary, another, a messenger with a message for Elijah. And he encourages him to, to eat. And he's even made him some cake. And uh, it's hot right out of the oven. And he hands it to him. He says, take this, eat this, you need, to, you need to build up your strength. He does this twice. And, and then Elijah journeys on further to another mountain. So at the beginning, he is in Mount Carmel, which is up again in the north in Israel. That's where he has done this incredible, mighty thing uh, through the power of the Lord. And then now here again, at the end of just two, two paragraphs down, Elijah's at another mountain. But this mountain has a special significance. It, here it's referred to as Horeb. Uh, but you certainly know this mountain as Sinai. It's the same place, just has a couple different names. So Sinai is full of significance. Mount Horeb is full of significance for the people of God. As you read the Old Testament, you see this mountain show up again and again and again. And it's usually associated with the Lord introducing himself, if you will, to his people. This is where Moses met the Lord in the burning bush, right? And the Lord revealed to Moses his very name. This is where the Lord met with Moses again, but this time after the Exodus, when he had brought God's people Israel out of Egypt, they came to this spot and they camped at the base of this mountain, and Moses went up the mountain to meet with the Lord again. And the Lord not only reiterated who he was, but then he gave Moses, he gave God's people a law. He gave them his word that they might obey him, fear him, know him, walk in his ways, be set apart among the nations. That, that's what has happened at this place, and of course, as you recall, in both of these situations with Moses and then with Israel, the Lord reveals himself in some pretty spectacular ways, a burning bush, and then when he meets with Israel, it's, it's through fire and trembling, there are earthquakes, there's clouds of smoke, there is a, an awe-inspiring sight here at this mountain. It leaves us wondering then, okay, now that Elijah's here, what, what's going to happen? What incredible thing is the Lord going to reveal about himself to his servant, his next prophet in the line of Moses, Elijah? What's Elijah going to learn here? What's he going to walk? Or what's the impression of the Lord that he's going to take away from this mountain experience? And so let's continue in verse 9. There he, Elijah, came to a cave. And he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Here we go. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's not exactly the thing we were expecting. Okay, what are you you doing here, Elijah? It indicates that the Lord actually didn't sanction anything that Elijah's just done. He just fled for his life out of great fear of Jezebel, and the Lord didn't actually tell him to do that. The Lord says, why are you here? I never told you to come here. Elijah answers him. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. But the Lord said to him, go out. And stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces. The the rocks that were broken apart before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And the seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So the voice of the Lord speaks to Elijah, just like we might have expected. Here we are back at Sinai. The Lord speaks to his prophet once again, just like in the days of Moses. And, and the Lord asks him a question. Why are you here? And of course, Elijah's answer uh, is, is very emotional, uh, very uh, is full of dread and fear. He says basically, God, I, I, I have been zealous for your cause. I have proclaimed your word to your people, and they, they don't want any part of it. And now I'm at a point where my life is being threatened, and I'm just done. I've had enough. I am the last remaining faithful one in all of Israel. Just, let's just call it a day. The Lord tells him to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and respond. And this, this, this evokes a similar or a familiar passage once again. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 33, you'll see what I mean here in Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. As the Lord tells. Elijah and kings go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. It brings to mind a familiar story in Exodus here which we're about to read. And it makes us wonder is this Exodus 33 all over again what I'm about to read to you starting in verse 12. Moses, okay so we Moses is here at the mountain at this point. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. This is just after the Exodus. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you have said, Lord, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, Israel, is your people. And He, the Lord, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 15, But Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold... There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Once again, well... I guess not once again, for the first time here in Exodus, Moses approaches the Lord on Sinai with the people of Israel behind him. He's concerned that the Lord isn't going to go with him. And if the Lord doesn't go with him, then all of this is going to fall apart very quickly. Moses knows how fickle the people of Israel are. He knows how fickle he himself is and powerless he is as a leader of God's people to do anything about saving them and protecting them and defending them. He says, Lord, if you don't go with us, we are, we're ton. we're done, we're toast. There's no hope. In 1 Kings, Elijah, like Moses, comes before the Lord with a very similar concern. God's prophet is coming before him with a complaint, once again, about Israel's faithfulness and sturdiness for the plans that God has designed for them. But Elijah seems less concerned about Israel's well-being than Moses was. You catch that? Elijah doesn't seem as bothered by what's going to happen to Israel so much as he is about himself. He seems less eager to see the Lord's glory even than Moses was. M- Moses demands boldly, he says, Lord, would you, I, I, I trust you, but I, I, need, I need to see you. I need to see your glory on display because that's really the only thing that's going to that's going to carry me and us through this is that your glory goes before us that your glory goes with us that your presence is among us but elijah he he's not really concerned about that even when the lord says hey come out of the come out of your cave come take a look i'm going to walk i'm going to pass by We actually don't even see Elijah doing that. It's not until the Lord whispers to him that that we see Elijah come out of the cave. He doesn't seem to really care. Or maybe he's afraid of what will happen if he actually steps out and sees the Lord. He's just not interested. Elijah's in a low spot here on this mountain. He's in a low place. Perhaps, perhaps Elijah has lost sight of his role in the Lord's redemptive plan. That seems to be what's going on. But the Lord passes by. There's a great, strong mountain-destroying wind. There is an earthquake. There is even fire. This is so reminiscent of all these other times that the Lord has made himself known to his people. Uh, But it's not until a low whisper, near silence even, that Elijah steps out. His face is, is half covered by this shroud It's reminiscent, if you uh, might imagine, to another place in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You get a lot of this same imagery, but, but it's not really until this whisper that the Lord actually is present and speaks to, speaks to Elijah. All of this is, is as if to say, let me reintroduce myself to you but in a way that you don't quite expect. We certainly don't anticipate that the Lord is gonna reveal himself to Elijah in a low whisper. But in this instance, what does God actually reveal of his nature, and why does he choose to do it this way? Again, he asks Elijah, why are you here? Again, Elijah responds verbatim with the answer that he gave before. It's an unusual story. What does this teach us? What does this narrative tell us about the nature of serving the Lord? What do we learn about the nature of serving the Lord from this story? I have three, three points that I want us to uh, dig into here. The, uh, number one, first of all, the Lord upholds his servants. He cares for them. The Lord upholds his servants. He cares for them. Elijah's weary, he's hungry, he is so dejected in his short-sightedness that he's ready to die. And I say his short-sightedness because uh, what just happened, Elijah? You were there on the mountain, you saw the Lord wipe out the prophets of Baal. I mean, he, he incinerated your offering while Baal uh, was possibly in the water closet. Uh, what, what's going on there? I mean, you have seen the Lord do mighty, incredible things you yourself slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal, maybe another 400 prophets of Asherah who were present. How, how are you terrified of Jezebel? What, what's going on? He's, he's very short-sighted, and yet the Lord cares so much for Elijah. I mean, he, he is so accommodating to Elijah's fickleness, faithlessness even, Despite Elijah's incredible record of faithfulness to, the po- to this point, he snaps and he runs without even considering all that the Lord has done and promised. It leaves us with a question or several questions that we could ask ourselves. And, and I guess it's best to phrase it this way Are, are you, believer, are you weary? Hey, what, why are you weary if you are? Elijah's worn out. He's exhausted. He is done. He says, I've had enough. At what point are you are you likewise saying maybe the same things to the Lord? Maybe you've been diligent to do everything just right for the Lord. But you feel like you have very little to show for it. You know, maybe, maybe some of that's rooted in some bad theology, thinking the Lord owes you some sort of favor. But, but maybe out of just a, a sense of real genuine desire to serve the Lord, you feel like you're just not seeing the results that you would have expected from your diligence and faithfulness to serve him. Maybe you have been cut off from the people of God for too long. And I think right now a lot of us, even those of us in this room, are probably feeling a degree of that separation and isolation from God's people. In Elijah's mind, he's the only faithful one left in Israel. He, he doesn't know, he can't, he can't look through his contacts on his phone and find anybody that he can text and ask for prayer. He has nobody. Do you maybe feel that way right now? Maybe you're at home, and, and maybe you have very legitimate reasons to be home, but you're, you're feeling isolated, cut off. You have no connection, no fellowship with the people of God. Or maybe you don't have very legitimate reasons to be home. There's a chance of that right now, too and you're isolated, you're, you're cut off, a sheep wandering from the flock. That too will wear you out. You're not meant for that. We're not meant to be isolated from, from the people of God. Maybe you're malnourished. You're, you're not being regularly fed by his word, and I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, which is such an essential, regular feast that we gather together together to participate in as we hear from God's word, but maybe even on your own, in your own just disciplines, you, you are forsaking the nourishment that the Lord has for you through his word, through the Bible, uh, through studying, through really getting into God's word and hearing from him on a regular basis. You're weary because of that. Or maybe, maybe you have seen the Lord do glorious things in your life, and through your life, but your present circumstances are really honestly just overshadowing all of that. You've seen the Lord's faithfulness firsthand. You've seen the Lord's might firsthand. You've seen him answer your prayers. You've seen him answer the prayers of other people, for you, for others. But man, don't we suffer from recency bias? And all we can think about is what we're facing right now, the list of things that we have to overcome for us to get back to a place where we feel like everything will be good again. And all of that just overshadows, it overwhelms your memories of the Lord's goodness to you in the past, his faithfulness, his might in your life. Even even the joy of the Lord's salvation that you've experienced. Are you weary? I think a lot of us would say in some way or other, yeah, I'm pretty worn out right now. I love Romans 14, 4, where Paul is really speaking to the church there about weak, weak believers, strong believers, and the judgments that God's people, even in healthy churches, tend to, to have for one another about their abilities to really serve the Lord faithfully. And, and Paul says this, he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In other words, your brother and sister in the Lord, they're not, they're not serving you, all right. They don't exist for you. But he says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now this passage is referring to the maybe the tendency we have to judge one another, but the principle undergirding it is still the same. If you are a servant of the Lord, you're only able to stand because the Lord upholds you. You're only able to face whatever circumstances you're dealing with Because the Lord is undergirding you, supporting you, holding you up. Believer, the Lord cares for you. If you are trusting in Christ, you have got to know. You've got to have this firmly established in your heart and your mind when you wake up in the morning. If you're a servant of the Lord, the Lord cares for you. I mean, look at Elijah. He's a mess. He's literally asking the Lord to take his life. But instead, the Lord sends him a messenger, an angel who provides him with sustenance to actually keep going. You would think the Lord would just kind of want to shut Elijah down right here. You know what? It might not be such a bad idea. I could use some better PR than what you're giving me right now. Done. But he doesn't do that. He gives him breakfast. He, he scrambles some eggs. He prepares some toast. He puts it on a plate. He freshly squeezes the orange juice, and he sets it down in front of him. And he says, you need to build up your strength, young man. Your journey, it continues. Elijah says enough, but the angel sure says, no, no, no. May, may, you need to actually make sure that you've had enough. Because your, your, your journey is still, it's still going. Fill up. He nourishes his servants, and he nourishes his servants today with his word. He fills us up. He, he strengthens us for what lies ahead with his word. He, he helps us to recover from what lies behind with his word. And he does that in two senses, really. He, he, he nourishes us with his word, the word as in Christ himself. right, like John 1, Jesus was the word. John 6, 35, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're a servant of the Lord, if you're trusting in Christ, you will be sustained, not by anything in and of yourself, not not by the, the morsels of this world, but you are sustained by the life giver. You are sustained by the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. He is our sustenance. He is our nourishment. He fills us up. And and not only does the Lord nourish us with his word, the person, the capital W word, Jesus, but he nourishes us with his word as in Scripture. Scripture, Matthew 4, 2 through 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, and he's out in the wilderness Facing his temptation, as you recall, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of the Lord is our sustenance. The Lord nourishes his people through his word spoken and through his word personified, Jesus Christ himself. That, that is... That's how the Christian life works. If you find yourself cut off from fellowship with Jesus, you are going to be worn out. If you find yourself cut off from God's word, you will be worn out. You will find yourself walking in paths that you are not meant to walk in. You will find yourself veering off course into sin and idolatry You will find yourself in pits of depression that you cannot climb out of when you cut yourself off from the bread of life, who is Jesus. I think that that's always important. I think it's especially important right now that we be diligent in our efforts to be nourished by God's word. That's why gathering on Sunday morning is important. That, that we would be fed. This is not, you should, when you wake up on Sunday morning, you should be thinking to yourself, all right, it's Thanksgiving. We're going to gather around the table, and we are going to be fed, and we're going to be fed so much that some of us are probably going to get a little sick. I don't know. And then afterward, afterward, then we can watch a little football. This metaphor is going too far. You need to see Sunday morning as feast time. You, you need to see the word of God as, as essential to your regular, everyday nutrition. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the word before you have your bagel, but it does mean that just like you wouldn't possibly dream of going to bed without having eaten something in the day, that you, you gotta know that over time, you too will be malnourished and you will be hungry and hangry like me, if you are not fed by God's word and the fellowship that we have around Jesus. Christian, the Lord has sent his capital M messenger, his very presence for your aid, Jesus. God with us. Avail yourself of the nourishment you can have through him. Point number two, the second thing that we we learn about serving the Lord from this narrative is that the Lord does not depend on his servants. He cares for them and preserves them. He doesn't depend on you. He preserves you. This story shows us Elijah's short-sightedness, his forgetfulness on full display. In fleeing from Jezebel, has he forgotten the nature of the one whom he represents? represents. It's plain that he's not really listening to the Lord anyway. I mean, it seems like he's literally forgotten him. In verse 7, he says, it's enough. You know what? Just take my life now. I am just, I am no greater than my father's. Elijah, were you you expecting to be great in some way? Like, was this all like a make Elijah great again campaign? Like, what was this? What, What was your aim? And then, not, not once, but twice in his response to the Lord, asking him, where are, what are you doing here? Elijah goes and looks so inward at himself. He, all he can see, all he can assess, all he can bring to the Lord is his zeal, his faithfulness, his orthodoxy relative to everybody else. It's as if he sees himself as the crux the fulcrum of God's redemptive plan. Or maybe if he doesn't think of himself that highly, maybe he thinks that the Lord is expecting this from him. Like, like maybe Elijah's saying, Lord, you, you're expecting too much from me. Do you, do you, like Elijah, maybe think that the Lord depends on you? I'm going to give you a few little uh, diagnostic thoughts here to help you assess if you think the Lord depends on you in some way or other. You might think, this is Jet Jeff Foxworthy moment here, you might think the Lord depends on you if you're afraid of not having all the answers. Um, maybe in terms of just communicating the gospel to people, I I need to know, I need to have an answer for every single thing that somebody could raise, any objection that somebody might have to the gospel. As I'm serving the Lord in this way, I need to know. I need to have all the ins and outs of what people might object to. Maybe it's not apologetics in nature, maybe it's just existential. Like, I need to know the whys of life, and if I don't have the answers for just human suffering or the pain that we experience or, or how good and evil can exist in a world that the Lord may, I, I don't have all these answers. Maybe if you think that having all those answers would make things better, that the Lord could do more with you if you did, then you're in some small way saying the Lord kind of actually depends on you to, to accomplish his purposes. Uh, maybe you think the Lord depends on you if you're not bearing the fruit that to your mind matches the effort you're putting forward. I have done and done, I have, I have brought nothing but zeal, I'm five minutes early to everything the Lord has called me to do, um, and I'm not seeing the results, I don't know, I'm just not seeing it, I'm not seeing it pan out. You might think the Lord depends on you if you don't feel properly recognized for the service that you have rendered to him, you know, Nobody, nobody's seeing this. Why isn't the Lord rewarding me in some way, making, making me known? You might think the Lord depends on you if you feel alone in your faithfulness. Nobody's faithful like me. All right? No, everybody else, these are all, everybody else is heretics, but I'm, I'm here on the, the front lines of faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, you might think the Lord depends on you if you think that bigger, louder, bolder is necessarily better. Brasher. If you think that by raising your voice, the Lord is more capable, able to use you, you might think, well, the Lord depends on my voice. I just need to speak louder. Beloved, you, you need to hear this. <clears throat> this, is, this may hurt a little bit, but I think it's really important that you have this figured out. The Lord doesn't need you. He doesn't need you in a couple ways. He doesn't, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need anybody. He, doesn't, he is completely independent. Psalm 50, verses 12 through 15, If, if I were hungry, the Lord says, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats, referring to the sacrificial system that the Lord actually implemented? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. The Lord is completely independent. In fact, you need the Lord to preserve you. And the beautiful thing is that he has sworn to do this. And even now, if you're in Christ, is doing this through Jesus, his son. So John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out like the Lord doesn't need you. He does not need you to do anything. Just, just, just entrust yourself to Him. Yeah, even in all your messed up brokenness and your sin and your failing, even in your Elijah like fear of every shadow that moves, entrust yourself to the Lord because He's done it all. He sent His Son. And his son's mission, which he has sworn to fulfill, is that he won't lose anyone that the Lord has given him. Not one. Not one. Jesus is the best doggone shepherd you could ask for. You don't have to be a better sheep for him to be a better shepherd. He takes care of his own. Right? He you need him to preserve. You, from your own sin, from your own fallenness, from your own, there are kids in the room, stupidity. Right? You, you need Jesus to do the preserving, depending sort of work. Not only does the Lord not need you, but the Lord doesn't need you. And I, I realized I pointed to McGraw's. So I wasn't picking you guys out. It was just sort of accidental. The Lord doesn't, he uses you guys. Uh, the Lord doesn't need you specifically in and of yourself for who you are. The Lord doesn't need you. God's, God's mere word, and we've seen it in the story. We've seen it in Genesis 1. God's mere word is the catalyst for his work. I mean, he, like this is, I think, maybe the point of this narrative here for when the Lord whispers. Like, he whispers and things happen. Like, Elijah's expecting fire from on high, and and the Lord just kind of whispers and summons Elijah out of his cave. Man, like, he whispers and things happen. Uh, Elijah's orders, as the Lord gives him these commands, uh, Elijah's orders, like ours, are really, they're nothing more than just heralding God's decrees. That's what we are. You're servant of the Lord. You're you're a herald. You're you're the paper boy on the corner, and you're just telling people to read more about it. Like, hey, here's what's happening in the world. You should know this. Give me a quarter, and I'll I'll tell you everything. That's what we are. We're heralds. We're standing on the corner, shouting what the Lord has done, because it's what the Lord has done. It's what the Lord has spoken that matters the most. Not not who we are in and of ourselves. The Lord tells Elijah, just in a, just in a casual conversation, he says, look, here's, here's where you're going from here. I want you to replace the king of Syria. Just go tell him that there's a, new, there's a new one. I want you to go to Israel. I want you to tell Ahab his time here is done, and I'm going to replace him with a guy named Jehu. Don't even know who this guy is, right? Uh, and then, oh, and then by the way, Elijah, I'm replacing you with another guy. It's going to get confusing. His name's Elisha. Um, oh, what else? Oh, and you know, there's this other thing. I've got 7,000 more of you in Israel. Did you not know that? Because you were acting for a minute there like you thought that it all hinged on you. <clears throat> but in my sovereignty, I've got 7,000 people at my disposal in the place where you said you were alone in your faithfulness. I've got 7,000 ready to do my bidding. Now, we know the Lord cares for Elijah as a person, right? We've seen that. So let's not, let's not wipe that away. But the point is, the Lord doesn't need Elijah because he's Elijah, And and the Lord, likewise, doesn't need us for for who we are, for what we bring to the table. This sermon is entitled, The Freedom of Being Dispensable. How is that freeing? Well, let's let's kind of look back at some of those diagnostic questions I asked earlier. The the reality is you don't need all the answers. In a philosophical, existential sense, or even in an apologetic, sort of defending the gospel sense. You don't have to have all the answers. Because the Lord doesn't need you and your smarts and your memory ability, and your knowledge of Scripture and theology. He doesn't need you. You can be faithful without the pressure of yielding results, of seeing people's lives. Like the Lord changes hearts. The Lord raises dead people to life. That's the Lord's work. You get to be a part of that, but it's not because you're doing it. It's because the Lord has brought you in. He's pulled back the curtain so that you can kind of see a little bit of what he's doing in the world. You can live without the need of recognition. Man, isn't that freeing? Man, like I can just serve the Lord and I can follow his word and I can just be faithful to him and I can do it imperfectly and there's not some sort of risk that like my employee of the month plaque is gonna get taken down because there's not one. There's like 7,000 more. We're, we're just, we just serve the Lord. We don't care about our own names. We have the freedom to not care about our name. I, I mean, that, in this world, that's blasphemy. But, but in reality, that is, that is freedom. That's freedom. You can delight in the faithfulness of others. Think about that. When you want to just see the Lord served and you want his glory to go forward, you can you are freed up to delight when other people do it and you're not necessarily at the center of it. You can rejoice in the Lord's faithfulness to other believers, other churches, you can rejoice in the faithfulness of others to the Lord and the the fruit of their ministry. You can you can celebrate that without feeling inferior or or like you, you have to now balance that out with some sort of excellence on your own. You can, you can rest in that. But your name doesn't have to be known. You can be content with the simple, quiet work of the Lord in you, in your life, and through you. I, I think that's huge. Because I think more and more we want bigger, louder, bolder, brasher, exciting or. Uh, but the Lord works in whispers too. He can change our hearts even as we don't perceive it. Is there something, here's a question you should ask, is there something that you can do that Jesus can't do or hasn't done? I think if your answer to that is yes, uh, we may have a problem. This is the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners, that he gave his life for you to redeem you from your sin. Tr- like trust in him and allow him to be the one therefore who does the work of righteousness receive the righteousness that is christ as a free gift and the lord looks on you with favor not because of anything you've done and let's not talk about faith being some sort of work here the, you are you are passive but the lord he works mightily in his in his people he brings dead people to life and and he does that in you. And so if you think that there's something that you therefore have to bring to this whole operation uh, besides the dead body, then you're wrong. The Lord has drafted you for something besides your utility to him. And I think that, that just flies in the face of our culture where every person is deemed valuable on some sort of sliding scale based on what they contribute, how much they're worth, what they bring to the table, the Lord's economy simply doesn't work that way. You, you, don't, you don't bring anything to the table, and you don't actually have to. The Lord does not, he has not brought you in because of your utility, your, your usefulness for him. Some of you aren't discipling other believers because you think of yourself maybe too much, too highly than you ought. Some of you don't sing on Sunday morning or you don't read your Bible on Monday because you think that in some way you're inferior for this task, that your voice isn't pretty enough, and it probably isn't, or that your your ability to understand the Bible isn't perfect, and it certainly isn't. But you're missing the point. The the Lord, he works out our sanctification in us. He works out our salvation in us. And it's a process. And it's something we can entrust ourselves to the Lord that he will do it. The third thing about serving the Lord that we learn from this text, and we'll wrap up here, is that the Lord employs his servants. He does have purposes for them. So he upholds his servants. He cares for us. He does not depend on his servants, but actually preserves them. And then thirdly, he employs his servants. He has purposes for them. It calls us then, to this, this whole idea causes us to think about ourselves with sober judgment. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, starting in verse 3. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Think of yourself soberly. Assess yourself rightly. The Lord has called you to his purposes. He'll equip you for the work that he intends for you to do. And you can do that to the best of your ability, knowing that even if it is not perfect, even if in some ways it is overshadowed by the better work of other people, other saints throughout history, The Lord can still, and in fact will, use you for his purposes. You you can still serve the Lord faithfully. It is enough to simply be faithful to the Lord and rest in the Lord's faithfulness to you. That's enough. So who are we? We are servants. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. What then is Apollos What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed, Paul tells this church. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The Lord does still call us. But not out of our usefulness, rather because of his mercy and his grace, that we might be trophies, that we might be representatives of his glory, not our own abilities. We are redeemed in order that we might, not because we already do, serve the Lord in faithfulness. We're redeemed for that purpose. Ephesians 2 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Father, sometimes we desperately need to be reminded that your purposes always stand, that your plans will never fail, that your word always accomplishes what you have set it forward to accomplish. And that's true as you work through us in this world, and it's true as you are at work in us, in the quiet of our own souls, you will do as you please. Lord, therefore, would you, would you free us up from our own self-centeredness, from our own ways of evaluating ourselves by what we perceive to be fruitful or not? what we perceive to be a threat to us or not. Lord, you are sovereign over all things. You, you use your saints as your servants, as instruments in your hands that you might accomplish your redemptive work. And the beautiful thing is, at the cross, that redemption was declared finished. You, you merely then beckon us to pick up the stack of papers, stand on the corner, and herald the redemption that you have done through your son. Imperfectly, sometimes very weakly, but you, you, you uphold your servants, you care for us, you nourish us, you give us daily reminders of your gospel, of the work of your son in our lives that we might be upheld and strengthened for the task. And then you free us to serve you by saying that you actually don't depend on us for anything. Even beckoning us to depend on you for everything. And you mercifully gracious employ us in your work as a a gift that we might be some small part of your work in the world. Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you equip us for that for that cause this week as we go, as we work, as we care for our children, as we care for our neighbors, as we wrestle with the circumstances that we face, help us to, to lift our gaze away from ourselves and our own abilities to withstand and instead to look to you and your faithfulness. Because as Elijah has said, as your angel has said, it is enough that we simply trust you. That we be faithful to you, even as you are faithful to us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.